Turn, please, in your Bible or use the Pew Bible and follow. As I read today from Matthew 14, our continuing studies in Matthew, another very familiar place. We think we know all these incidences, and maybe we think we know all the lessons from them. I don't know about you, but I go into these things and mine around deep in them and find all kinds of things I didn't know before, so hopefully... We can help you see some new insights for your life as we look at God's Word this morning and the ministry of Jesus Christ. This incident is primarily unique to Matthew. There is a report in Mark and John of this second calming of a storm. The first one was when Jesus was in the boat in chapter 8 of Matthew. This time he doesn't start out in the boat. But Matthew is the only one that adds the unique element, the second episode of this story of Peter's walk upon the water. Listen to God's Word as God gave it through His people. We believe it was His Spirit that used human minds and human experiences and viewpoints in such a marvelous way that what is reported is God's own holy revelation. Listen to his word here, Matthew 14, starting at 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. The National Transportation and Safety Board once did an examination of what it takes to be a good driver of a motor vehicle. It takes many things, and this was just one part of their published report, but it fascinated me. Apparently, a big issue is where your visual attention is focused. I don't know how they could ever claim to measure these things, but they did, and they claim, came up with a study that said that novice drivers 
are drivers who primarily stare straight ahead. 90% of the time, this is what they see. And they, you know, maybe hold the wheel tight, and they're staring ahead. 5% of the time, those novices look to the right or the left. And the other 5%, they actually manage to glance in the rearview mirror. I followed those drivers with ambulances on their bumper, with sirens going. And they're staring straight ahead. No idea what's right behind. They said, on the other hand, expert drivers look out at what's in front of them 71% of the time. How do you measure that? I have no idea. 71% of the time, 10 or more percent of the time, they're looking side to side. And a surprising 19% of the time, they're checking the rearview mirror to see what's behind. In other words, good driving has everything to do with knowing where to look. Today we're going to see that much the same is true about effective faith. Now last time, just to remind you, or perhaps you weren't with us, we looked at the very familiar feeding of the 5,000 immediately before this in Matthew 14. And this is the same day, the evening and night of the day following that feeding, that wonderful event that the disciples were part of when 5,000 men plus who knows how many more received that multiplication of common bread and common fish at the hands of Jesus. And then that night came this incredible spectacle of Jesus walking on the waves of a somewhat stormy sea. It doesn't tell us that the storm was really bad. They, they weren't afraid from the storm this time like they were when Jesus was in the boat earlier and they, they despaired for their lives, but it was a, enough of a storm that it gave them opposition. And Matthew tells us what Mark and John do not in their accounts of this same incident, that Peter actually joined the Lord walking on the waves. Now, you've got to admit, this is a stunning scene that is painted here. Jesus had done many miracles before this. He had healed people from all kinds of different maladies and already raised the dead, helped the blind to see, some dramatic calming of a storm, as we said in a previous time, fairly dramatic things. But I don't think there is a passage so far about a miracle of Jesus, at least in Matthew's gospel, that explodes with the spectacular things that this does. This is kind of like a Hollywood producer's dream script, you almost want to say. There's so much in it that's visual and that's amazing. I'm told that the ancient Egyptians, you've seen surely at some time in your life their hieroglyphics, their picture language, by which they could tell considerable stories just in pictures and symbols. I'm told that in hieroglyphics, the Egyptians had a symbol for a deed that was actually physically and in every way that you could conceive of an impossible deed. Guess what the symbol was? It was ocean waves like this with two human feet as if they were walking above it. In other words, what, what is the most impossible thing the Egyptians could conceive of? Walking on water. So if they wanted a symbol for that, little waves with feet on top. 
Now, that probably indicates the way people in general would think about what is depicted in this event. They say it can't be true to life. It didn't really happen that way. William Barclay, who's a liberal Bible commentator, whose little commentaries are very popular, he's good in a lot of things, he says, but he says, oh, Jesus wasn't walking on the water. He was walking beside the water. In other words, he was on the beach, and it just looked because of the storm and the night as if he was on the water. Well, Barclay should have been too good a Greek scholar to ever say that because the preposition is on. It's not beside. It's not nearby. It's on the water in the Greek language. I refuse to get defensive about the supernatural element of Scripture and about particular miracles. The greatest of all the historical miracles of the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You need to make a decision as to whether that is true or not. And the Bible presents it with such historic, solid rings of evidence drawn around it of eyewitnesses and and people who weren't expecting it and then were convinced by it and all the things we've gone through many times about why is the resurrection a believable event, that if that is believable and if that happened in time and space history by the power of God in the life and body of Jesus Christ, then why would we quibble about any other miracle? Because the God who brought his son to life after the cross is the God who can do anything. Why should we quibble about the Red Sea? Why should we quibble about Jonah inside a great fish, Jesus walking on the waves? Either we have in Scripture the God of the supernatural, or we do not. And it's not a case of having to take every miracle apart and say, well, this one seems believable, but this one doesn't. Well, the theme that is communicated, I believe, to us in this miracle is not just hey, here's a great scene to be impressed with. No, it is, the, it is the lesson that Christ will share his power with any disciple who looks to him in steadfast faith. In our case, that's power to have new lives and sins forgiven and eternal life. And then additionally, that even if that disciple looks away from him at some point, this same Savior stands ready to rescue. He does not despise even faith that has a tendency to waver. I'm going to make four distinct points today, so they're each of them not too long. The first is a kind of preamble that prepares the scene for us, verses 22 through 24. And I would summarize what's in these verses by giving it this heading, Jesus thrusts disciples into an arena of testing under his sovereign oversight. We read, he made the disciples go into the boat and proceed ahead of him to the other side of the lake while he went up into a mountain by himself to pray. Now, I don't think we automatically have the understanding of the fairly sharp atmosphere of tension that came in the wake of the feeding of the 5,000. This Matthew's account really doesn't give it to us. It cuts off the feeding of the 5,000 with verse 21, telling us how many were fed, and then immediately Jesus made the disciples go. And you wonder, well, wait a minute, you're scratching your head. They went there to have a retreat in the first place, not planning 
At least their human plan wasn't that the crowd would show up. They were going to be alone. And, and now, all of a sudden, the same day that they planned to retreat, immediately after the 5,000 plus are fed, Jesus sends the disciples away and sends the crowd away. In other words, retreat canceled. Why? Well, this is where putting the Gospels together helps a lot and seeing the parallel accounts. John, in his account of this, chapter 6, verse 15, helps us. Because he says, after the people began to understand, you know, it was, it was like they didn't understand at first, but maybe in ripples and whispers it went out through the crowd. Hey, did you understand that he only had a few loaves, and where did all this come from? And they started to, to get excited about what had just been, maybe to many of them, a normal feeding. And they said, wait a minute, this is amazing. And John 6.15 says the, the people talked among themselves saying, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And then it says, Jesus knew they intended to make him a king by force. And so he withdrew himself to the mountain. That's important to know. This was an electric atmosphere. And it was an atmosphere that was starting to go wrong as far as popular enthusiasm and go wrong in such a way that it could have even easily infected the disciples whose, whose notions and understanding of what Jesus was and what he was there to do were still elastic and, and not everything they could have been. And Jesus was not going to allow himself to be victimized by some popular political movement. There was indeed a crown that was going to sit on his head, but it was not a crown from human politics or from some popular uprising that would put him on their shoulders and, and carry him forward as a political messiah. And so he rather abruptly cancels all plans, basically says, disciples, get back in the boat. I know we came here for a retreat, but I want you now on the west side of the lake. Go on over there. I'll meet you there. I can't go with you right now. Crowds, that's it. Thank you for a good day together. Goodbye. And you have the sense that he almost fled from their presence before they could get themselves organized to act upon their ideas about him politically. In a sense, what was happening there was a renewal of the same temptation Jesus had faced two years before when Satan dealt with him in the, in the wilderness. Remember? Somehow the devil whispered to him, you, you know, you don't have to go to a cross. You don't have to do this hard thing. You can be the ruler of, of every kingdom the eye can see and miles and miles beyond that. Just, just do it my way. Just worship me. And that, in a sense, was a renewed temptation. Remember, at the end of that temptation, it says Satan left him until an opportune time. Well, here was an opportune time. Satan was back in the voices of the people. And Jesus needed to get to his Father. He needed to pray. We see the human side of him here. He really needed to renew in solitary conversation with the Father the errand that he knew he was bound on, which did not include this plan. Now, I have a sense as I read what's going on here in Matthew 14 that there is a person in command of everything that's happening, and it's Christ. You know, it might sound like he wasn't in command. The people were about to have an uprising and so on, but he is in command. You know, if people are ready to get, get him or crown him, he says, no, that's not going to happen, and he's gone. And furthermore, he's in command of the lake, and he's in command of what's happening 
to the disciples. He might have been separated from them, but he was with them, and he knew their circumstance exactly every moment. We try to put together exactly what was going on. We don't know exactly what time the disciples left, but it was evening when they left. And when Jesus appeared to them, it was the fourth watch of the night. That's by the Roman reckoning. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's when you early risers get up and start your day. It's still dark. Many people are still slumbering on, but it's nearly morning. So there's, there's a space here of probably minimally six, maybe nine hours. And we would think, why did it take that long to get midway across the lake? These fishermen, Peter, James, and John, they knew boats. They knew how to handle things. It's only, uh, um, you know, it's, one shore is visible from the other. It shouldn't take that long. Well, evidently, the wind was hard against them. And they really had difficulty making progress. The NIV version says they were some distance away. There's a more exact reading from the Greek that says they were several stadia. A stadium was a particular measure of distance. This is at least a couple miles, which would put them right about in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was in command of their situation. You would say, well, They should have been in command. They were fishermen. They knew how to handle boats. It doesn't sound like this was an outrageous storm. It wasn't swamping them. They weren't saying we're ready to die or anything like that. But yet it wasn't their skill that was in command. It was the power of the Son of God who had participated in the creation of oceans and lakes who commanded this moment. You know, we often think, And here's where I see an application for us here. We think if we've come into some kind of a stormy time in life or a time when the waves seem to be against us and the wind seems to be against us, one of the things we start doing as Christians is ask ourselves, well, did I sin here? How how is it that I'm in this difficult time? Why are these waves rising up? Why this this opposition to what I'm trying to achieve in my life or, or to my relationships or whatever it may be? And we are tuned to think, and it's not a wrong thing to think, did I sin? Did I do wrong that I got in this trouble? But once we've thought that and examined that, if, if our conscience is telling us and the Spirit of God is telling us, well, I don't see any place where I'm defying God here or, or where I went deliberately astray from His will, I want you to keep in mind that these disciples were in this time of difficult opposition on the lake because Jesus sent them there. That's a simple point, but it's a good point for us to know. The one who is Lord of our lives can and does send us into places of testing, places of difficulty, where he is sovereign, where he knows what's going to happen and is in control of it, but we're not necessarily there because we're outside his plan. We might be right in the middle of his plan. Can you believe that about your own life if you're in a turbulent time right now? You're not necessarily in difficulty because you've defied God, because you've said, well, this is His will, but I'm going to do this. No. You may be experiencing tall waves and gale force winds that are entirely allowed by God and are certainly under the control of God for the trying of your faith. 
So he sent his disciples into an arena of testing, but under his sovereign oversight. Secondly, this uh, Matthew 14 event, which happened on this, remember Snoopy, who's always writing the novel in Peanuts that begins, it was a dark and stormy night. Well, it's a dark and stormy night. And on this dark and stormy night, we can learn secondly that Jesus Christ is the divine person worthy of our absolute faith. It was between 3 and 6 a.m. I'm sure the disciples would like to have been in bed. They'd already crossed that lake in the west to east direction that day. They'd already, you know, dealt with thousands of people wearing them out as they heard Jesus and were healed and, and then the, the feeding and now trying to go west against the wind and battling it and not getting anywhere. They had to be exhausted, even as experienced fishermen. But now to top it all off, they look and they see a phantom-like figure. There was something familiar about it, and yet you didn't see people in the middle of a lake walking toward you. And when they saw that, naturally, they cried out. They were afraid. There were, there was certainly superstition in their lives, and, and they said, it's a ghost. Why? What is it? Something come to harm us. Who is it? And then what Jesus said in reply to those cries is very important to this text. He said just a few words. It is, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Nearly every biblical commentator fastens upon the importance of him saying, it is I. Maybe that doesn't sound like anything all that important to you. It's just, you know, like, I come into a room, and you're there, and it's dark, and you say, who is it? And I say, it's me. Oh, okay. Glad to have you here, Pastor. You know, no big deal. It's me. Well, it's, it's the form of the words that he's saying in the Greek language which match exactly the words of the Greek edition of the Old Testament when on significant occasions like the burning bush with Moses and other times, God spoke to Moses and said, you know, Moses was saying, who are you? Do I know your name, God? And God said, I am who I am. That's exactly what Jesus was saying here. And Matthew and the other New Testament authors understand that as a message of divine identity. He wasn't just saying it's Jesus whom you know. He was saying, really, I am That's what I'll tell you about who's coming to you on the lake. One author, I'd never seen this before, points out uh, that the Greek text of this episode, beginning at verse 22 through verse 33, is exactly, he counted them, I didn't, 180 Greek words. And the words, I am, are the 90th and the 91st words. In other words, he's saying, as Peter was inspired, or not Peter, Matthew was inspired to write this, God was putting those words right at the center as the pivotal point of this episode. The announcement, I am. I am. That's the name I bear. That's the name that needed no other explanation when it was heard in the Old Testament. After all, Psalm 77 records this question 
or, the, or at least an answer to the question of who but God can walk upon water. Psalm 77 says, Your path, O God, leads through the sea, through the great waters. Job 9.8 says, The Lord and the Lord alone treads upon the sea. And the important point here, secondly, in this understanding of this passage is, Jesus was doing what the Old Testament said only God could do. And when he identified himself, he identified himself in the way God identified himself. So that makes him the one person worthy of implicit trust that should be reserved for God alone. Jesus Christ is saying, I am worthy of your trust. I am. That's what Moses was told, and he was expected to trust in it. That's what I'll tell you, and I expect you to trust me as you would trust God himself. Now, Matthew 14 suggests that Peter understood this. You know, a lot of times, Peter, poor guy, he gets a really bad rap, and many times he deserves it. You know, there are many times when he's pretty dull-witted or boastful or so impulsive that we say, you shouldn't have done that, Peter. You shouldn't have spoken so quickly, Peter. And some commentaries on this passage are critical of Peter for saying what he said and doing what he did. I'm going to side with, and I believe I'm correct in siding with the majority, who say, no, don't criticize Peter here. Because for once, he acts marvelously. And he acts from real and biblical faith when he says, Lord, not just courtesy, you know, sir or doctor, Lord, since it's you, I believe it is you. I believe what you're telling me. And since it is you, bid me to come, to come to you on the water. Now, you might think Peter was showing off. But I think if you think that, he, you don't understand how deeply he loved his Lord and how much he was growing by leaps and bounds in faith. He had just participated the day before, hours before, in that sharing, that passing out of bread, which, which he surely couldn't understand. How is this bread constantly in my hands? No matter how fast I give it away, there's more of it. And he, in other words, had been part of the supernatural action of God working through Christ. And in a sense, he was saying, Lord, I've already shared in the wonders and the marvels of what you are. Now here's another chance. Let me share in it again. I see you now doing what God does. Let me be part of this. Since it's you. And his faith seemed to know no bounds at that moment. You know what happens? Just about all of you have remotes for your TV these days, unless you've clung to the same TV for 30 years and you still get up and cross the room to change channels. I don't think there's too many of you that do that, but you know what the mute button is, of course. It's great for commercials. Uh, I watch whole movies sometimes without hearing a single commercial. What does the mute button do? You push it and the sound disappears. The picture's still there. You, you still know where you are in terms of the program you've been watching or the movie, but you make the sound go away. Think of Peter's faith at that moment as the pressing of the mute button. The wind didn't matter. The waves didn't matter. The boat didn't even matter. He saw one thing, and that sight filled his entire vision 
his entire imagination, his entire consciousness. It was the glory and the splendor and the power of Jesus whom he knew appearing in the power of God. It filled his vision. There wasn't any room for wind or waves or anything else. They were still there, but he wasn't conscious of them. And he said, Lord, grant me the ability to come and and to show approval. Jesus says, all right, come. Peter wasn't acting on his own. Jesus said, do it. Go for it, we would say. Come, Peter. And so this disciple climbed out of the boat. And for at least a a few seconds, for 15, 20, 30 seconds, the mute button was still on. Waves, there aren't any. They're like a concrete sidewalk. Wind, there isn't any. What do I see? Jesus, and I'm moving toward him. And then suddenly, he checks his feet. And you know what happened. Suddenly, he looked at the wind. Suddenly, the mute was hit again, and everything came back into the picture as it naturally was. All the adverse circumstances. And what immediately happened, he began to sink. Suddenly, that unqualified, sight-filling look of Christ wasn't what he saw anymore. Now, in the third place today, we might wish that the story would have ended before this because we would have liked to just seen Peter striding right out there and grasping the Lord's hands and, and not have this failure part. But I want to say thank God for this failure part because this is where we come into the picture. In the third place today, I want to tell you that this incident shows us that all human faith eventually will, must, look away from Christ and look at the waves. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, beginning to sink. He cried, Lord, save me. Immediately, without hesitation, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter's attention moved off the Savior and onto the storm. It moved away from the deity and looked at the deluge. And what had been an overwhelming sight now wasn't even in his eyes at all. All he saw was water and wind and himself drowning. But let us ask this. How long can any human being hold in their sight that picture of Jesus Christ alone blocking everything out from view? Let's face it. Sinful humanity can't do that forever or even for a very sustained and long time. So I'm thankful for Peter's inevitable sinful failure here. But what I'm also so thankful for is this rescue of Jesus. Think about the alternatives. Jesus could have let him go down, you know. Okay, Peter, drink a few gallons and, and learn, a, learn a hard lesson there. I'll, I won't let you die, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to grab you right away because you're, you're so bad at faith. I think that's how we think God treats us. But it isn't how Peter was treated. It doesn't even sound like his head went underwater. Immediately, the Lord grabbed him. Immediately, in the face of this bad faith, this failing faith, this look in the wrong direction, he was grabbed by the mercy of God and lifted 
And you know what we can say here is that we can expect our Savior to save us before he scolds us. And even when he scolds us, it's not very bad. What did Jesus say? He didn't say, why, you scoundrel? You shouldn't have asked to get out of that boat in the first place. I don't understand what you were thinking of, you proud rascal. No. He said, Peter, why are you of such little faith? Why did you doubt? You see, even Peter's little faith at its weakest moment was better than no faith. What was called little faith was still large enough to send out a 911 call and to know who to call for. Lord, save me. I don't think Jesus Christ ever rebukes his disciples for getting out of our boats to trust him in deep waters. Our faith leads us many times to participate in the great works of God. Certainly our salvation is the greatest. And while our faith is fixed on Christ, there are times in our life when, when maybe we do push the mute button and we see Christ full and clear and, and we say, Lord, I know you want this and I'm going to trust you for this and I'm going to go forward. And then we inevitably look away. But what happens? When we look back, what happens? Does he say, forget it, I'm done with you? Or does he immediately grab us when we look back and say, oh, why did you doubt? I'm glad to have you back. You know, realism about our fallen nature says we're always going to look away. There's every kind of distraction in our life, pain, physical illness, the grief of bereavement, disappointments we meet with in our careers or at work or school, relationships that go wrong. All kinds of circumstances are these winds and waves, and we we look at them and say, oh, I walked with Christ before, but I can't walk with him through this. And our faith is temporarily eclipsed, and these things take center stage and consume our attention. Are we lost? No. Not so long as little faith looks back again. And says, Lord, save me. The British bishop, J.C. Ryle, you may be mistrustful of Church of England bishops, but J.C. Ryle was a fine evangelical, fine man of God. In his little commentary, he writes this about this incident. Ryle says, what a lively picture this is of the experience of nearly every believer. We have enough faith for the first steps in following Christ, but not enough to always go on as we begin. We take a sudden fright at some trial or danger. We look at difficulties too much that beset our path. Our feet begin to sink. Our hearts start to fail. Our comforts disappear. Why? He said, Christ has not altered. Our enemies are no bigger than they were before. But simply, it is that like Peter, we have ceased to look toward Jesus, and we've chosen to go with unbelief. Years later, as a mature apostle, Peter wrote in 1 Peter, his letter, 1.6, and he said, now, believers, he was writing to, now, for a little while, you have been distressed by various trials. You're in the wind and the waves. And he said, that is so that the proof of your faith which is more precious than gold, may result in the praise and glory and honor seen at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. All human faith eventually looks away. But even little faith always has the chance to look back again. Now, fourthly, then, we have the climax quickly that is happening in this boat as Peter and Jesus are in the boat. The storm is calmed. There's no drama about the storm calming. It's, it's, we don't even hear Jesus commanded to stop. It just stopped when they were in the boat. And now we see something wonderful, Christ being accorded worship as Lord and God. I need to remind you of this. It's very important. Those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. You say, well, they said that a lot, didn't they? Well, you're studying Matthew with me. There's a progression to what we're learning in this gospel. I want to remind you that previously in this gospel, in chapter 3, God the Father, remarkably, somehow the Father's voice was heard at the baptism of Jesus saying, this is my beloved Son, a recognition of His Sonship. In chapter 8, verse 29, there was another recognition of His Sonship. That was from a demon who shrieked, what do you want with us, Son of God? Those are the two previous recognitions of Jesus being the Son of God in this gospel. Now, in chapter 14, for the very first time, in some united way, the disciples say, truly, you are the Son of God. And they bowed down. They bowed down like those magi bowed down to the little infant 30 years earlier. This is a landmark moment when homage is being given to the divinity of Christ by those who knew Him best. They gave Him praise that you give only at the feet of God. And the challenge of this passage remains. Have you, in your understanding of the mystery and the wonder of all that Jesus Christ is as God reveals Him in the Gospel, has it percolated down yet through your consciousness, your mind, your spirit, that you must bow down before Him as the one who is and does what only God can do as a human being? Have you bowed low before Him and called Him Lord and God? Popular writer Max Lucado has this in one of his books. He said, I saw God. He is the God who lets me get frightened enough to need Him, who then comes up close enough for me to see Him. I saw God. It took a storm. But in the midst of the storm, I saw Him. And I'll never be the same. You see, faith is primarily about knowing where to look. You must look exclusively at Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh, who is worthy of all trust and adoration. And when you look away, which you will, when you look away, look back. Call out again. No matter how many times your vision gets distracted, look back again. Look to Christ, and you will find what the hymn says is very true. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we confess we are Peter all the way through. Good starters, not good finishers. But we thank you, Father, for this lesson of realistic faith that does look away, that does get terrified. Give us the continuing faith. Having looked to Christ once to look back again, again, again. No matter how many times we must say, Lord, save me even from myself and my failing eyesight. Thank you that we believe your rescue is there when little faith cries out. We praise you for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. And we are going